Well, here in Psalm 37, we have lots of promises that the righteous shall inherit the land or the earth. As you probably know, the Hebrew word eretz can mean both land, as in the land of Israel, and the, the earth, and that they shall dwell there forever. As uh, you got quite clearly there, verse 29, the righteous shall inherit the land and dwell therein forever. So this is a, a, a clear uh, proof that the kingdom of God shall be finally on the earth. And of course the Lord Jesus in Matthew 5, 5 refers back here when he says that the meek, the humble, shall inherit the earth. And so this is very much a psalm about the kingdom, and it's a psalm about having a kingdom perspective on the issues that are going on in our lives now. And there's a word that keeps on occurring, at least in the King James, don't fret yourself. Psalm starts in verse 1, fret not thyself, don't fret. And uh, you have this a number of times. Uh, verse 7, fret not thyself because of him who prospers in his way. Now, the idea of the Hebrew word behind that uh, translation in the King James to fret is to get angry, to get worked up. That's the idea. Don't get worked up. Don't get angry about evildoers because ultimately you are going to live forever in God's kingdom on earth. Now, this issue about getting worked up, getting fret, getting uh, angry uh, about other people, this is a major issue. Because you may think that only certain people have got anger problems, but actually I think that we all do have anger problems, and the anger problems are always about people, about what other people have done, about issues of justice, that they did this. In my case, they decided like that, but in her case, they decided like that. That he said this, or she did that. It's just not on. And people get so angry about these things, and they keep playing the, uh, the recording, as it were, of the situation in their minds, day in, day out, and over the years, they become totally worked up about other people, and the wrongs of others. And I guess we've all seen people lose their faith ultimately because of this kind of thing, or people who never actually come to faith because they are so worked up about these issues of justice and the wrongness of others. And this is a, a really major problem, and I don't believe it's just in others. I dare to say that it is in you and it is in me, and we don't want to be like this. We don't want to be angry people. We don't want to be people who keep on playing the tape of what he said, what they did, etc., etc. This is not the way to go. This is not the way to be. And David's answer is, look, focus upon the kingdom. Have a kingdom perspective. And he says in, in verse 2, look, don't get worked up. Don't fret. Don't keep on playing the tape about injustice and what he did and what she did and what they did. Because they shall soon, or suddenly, quickly, is the idea, be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. Now, where do you get that idea elsewhere in Scripture about the grass being cut down and the green herb withering? Well, it's in Isaiah 40, where we read that this actually is the fate of all men and women in death, that we grow up and yet we die and wither ultimately just like the, the herb, just like the grass. So I don't think in verse 2 that his idea is so much that, well, 
those bad people, God one day suddenly will suddenly strike them down dead. For one thing, that doesn't happen, but, or normally it doesn't happen, but I think what he's saying is, look, they also shall one day wither and die because they are only mortal. So this is one perspective to hold on this whole issue of hurt by others. Now, it is really the case that people suffering from depression, from anger, from crisis of faith, etc., will, if they're honest, admit in counselling that they are thinking about a certain person or a certain group of persons who they think have wronged them or wronged someone near to them. Uh, they're thinking about these people every day. And they keep on going over about these people. Now, look, those people in your life and in my life who we feel like that about, they are only human, and they shall die. They shall wither, and one day there will be their body lying probably in a, uh, in a mortuary and then put in a box maybe and put into the ground six feet under, and that will be the end. And it may be a gravestone, if they're lucky, with their name on it. And that's the end. And in the perspective of infinity, of infinite time, this is the kingdom perspective, but their little life has just been nothing. And yet, they may keep you effectively out of the kingdom if you keep on and on thinking about them. So, they, they are mortal. Those people that you've got in your life who make you feel like that, they are mortal, and they too shall die. But, as he keeps on saying, trust in the Lord, and verse 3, do good. Don't get caught up with these people. Just focus on the positive, on doing good. And so you shall dwell in the land. Uh, and verily the AV says thou shalt be fed. I think the idea is you shall be a pastor. You shall be a, a ruler in that future kingdom. Verse 4, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now in the context, the desires of your heart is paralleled, I think, with inheriting the earth and dwelling there forever. If the one thing that you want in your life, more than anything else, is that you will be in God's kingdom, then hold to that perspective. Now, if that is the, the desire of your heart, not to get right with those that hurt you, slandered you, destroyed you and your family, as, as you may see it, um, and I'm not saying they didn't, I'm just saying that you know, that's one thing. But the desire of your heart should be to live forever in God's kingdom. And that does put a huge perspective on whatever is going on in our lives right now. Verse 4, delight yourself in the Lord. May this be your delight. Now, when we open the scriptures, do we have that delight you know, David talks about that, doesn't he, and later on in Psalm 119, that his delight is in God's way. And, I, of course, he does mean in reading God's word, but not only in that, but whatever you think about that God has done, be it creation, be it his ongoing creation that is all around us in the natural world, be it what he did in the past at the Red Sea, or above all in the life of his dear son, that should be our delight that I love reading those things. Tell me the stories of Jesus. You know, this is what it should be like for us in, in adult life, in our maturity. Tell me those stories of Jesus. That should be our delight. And 
that theme of delight is, uh, is repeated here, of, uh, of course, several times in, in this psalm. Um, in verse uh, 11, in the kingdom, the meek shall inherit the earth. As I said, Jesus quotes that, Matthew 5, verse 5, about us, and will delight themselves in the abundance of peace. That is what the kingdom life is all about, about delighting in peace and in spiritual things. Now, if your delight is in peace, you are not going to fret yourself about all the unpeaceful things that others have done. And, of course, in verse 21, we have, in many versions, and I believe in the Hebrew also, an ambiguous uh, grammatical construction. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delights in his way. Does that mean God delights in the way of the good man, or the good man delights in God's way? Well, I think the ambiguity is intentional, because insofar as we delight in the things of God, believe it or not, God delights in us. We're his pleasure. Instead of, you know, if we feel from our end, ah, oh, tell me the stories of Jesus. I just love to hear them. I love to think about the ways of God. So God will look at Duncan's life and your life as we lived it this day and yesterday, and we'll just delight to go over it, maybe with the angels. That sense of God delighting in us, I think you see also in verse 6. God shall bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. In what sense can that be true of us, we who are sinners? That our righteousness will be brought forth as the light. Well, I think it fits in with quite a few uh, Bible verses that talk about the day of judgment in these terms. The classic one, I suppose, is in Matthew 25, when the Lord Jesus returns and there's the judgment. And he says to the faithful, well done. When I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. Uh, well done. When I was naked, you clothed me. Thank you. So he, as it were, rehearses their good deeds to them. And of course, with appropriate humility, <clears throat> they are strong, strongly enough convicted that this is not me, that they actually say to him, no, when, when did that happen? And he says, oh yes, it did. It's as if they're going to be so convicted of their own, or we will be so convicted of our own uh, unworthiness that we will almost argue back with the Lord Jesus at the Day of Judgment, which is a pretty, uh, that's a pretty strong position to hold. <laughs> when he says something, and you say, no, no, actually, no, or when was that? Um, <clears throat> that's how convinced we're going to be that this is uh, somewhat inappropriate. But that conviction that it's inappropriate is because we maybe fail to perceive the degree to which God loves us and delights in us. It's as if he, as I say, as if he says to the angels, tell me what Duncan or Joe or whoever did today. And he notices things. This is the point. And that all that will be displayed. Not, of course, to our personal glory, but because he loves righteousness and he displays righteousness when he sees it not immediately but he remembers it and brings out to the light that righteousness this is why <clears throat> at the end of Jude <clears throat> we read that at the last day we will be resplendent in glory without any fault before the very judgment presence 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. That there will be no fault in us whatsoever. We will be presented faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Now, then we will realize, maybe only then, the degree to which God delights in us, the degree to which he sees us as if we are righteous, because we're in Christ, because we are covered in his righteousness. Only then will we perceive the huge sensitivity that God has had to our lives, to our good deeds that we've done, <clears throat> even though we have forgotten them. Because, you know, they, the righteous will say, when did we see you naked? When did we feed you? So there will, in some sense, be a going through of our lives at the Day of Judgment. But it seems that, from God's perspective, the going through with the righteous is a going through of the good things they did. Because you know, he's looking forward to marrying us, as it were, to entering into deeper relationship with us, and in his eyes at that time we shall be faultless. And of course, as Paul makes clear in his letters, we in Christ are counted like that right now, because his righteousness is counted to us. And not only that, as I say, but in the good things that we do in response to that, God is highly sensitive to those things. So then, this again provides a perspective on those people who make us fret, who make us angry. That, in the end, God sees. And if we're suffering for doing well, those good things that we have done shall be revealed in the last day. And so many people want to see the resolution in this life. And that's understandable from a human perspective. But... We are living from a kingdom perspective, and you are not going to see justice done in this world. That is the whole point of a day of judgment, and the Hebrew and Greek words for judgment and justice are closely related. The day of judgment is, in a sense, the day of justice. And so then we're looking forward to justice, not now, but when Jesus comes. And that's why so often in the Psalms, David is urgent that the day of judgment should come he says judge me O lord many times enter into judgment with me it's not as if he thinks oh yeah well i want the kingdom to come but there is this judgment thing oh yikes how am i going to get on at the day of judgment he wants judgment to come because he had a good conscience so in verse 8 cease from anger and forsake wrath fret not yourself in any wise to do evil because evildoers shall be cut off. Now just uh, notice what he's saying there. Don't let your anger at evil people make you evil. That's what he's saying. That if, you're, if you get angry and wrathful in this destructive sense, fretting yourself, you may end up doing evil. And don't worry, evildoers shall be cut off. Don't worry about that. You are not the judge. And so often we have seen that happen, have we not, in ecclesial or church life. We have seen this happen, that somebody gets so bitter about somebody whom they perceive has wronged them, that their behaviour 
actually becomes as bad as that person, in essence. They don't do the same thing, maybe, although they sometimes do do the same thing. Um, but they, their anger and their wrath becomes such a part of them that they actually become really no better than the person who they claim has abused them. And so, as so often happens, the abused abuse. And this circle just goes on. And the psalm is wonderful, really, isn't it? it? Because David had every opportunity, because of what he suffered from Saul and others, to have developed these anger complexes. And really, his, his example with Saul and with dealing with the anger he must have felt against Saul and the house of Saul is really, really a great parade example, really, of getting over it and having a kingdom perspective. Now, there are a number of allusions in this psalm to Saul. Although David wrote this, it seems, in later life, because he says in 25, I've been young and now I'm old, but I never saw the righteous forsaken nor his seed begging bread. Um, <clears throat> although he's writing this in later life, he alludes several times in the psalm to his experiences at the hand of Saul. So I take this as someone who got there spiritually in the end, who actually overcame their anger issues with someone who had abused them and is now writing this psalm telling us how they managed it. But let me just first demonstrate some of those allusions back to Saul. Okay, 13. The Lord shall laugh at him, at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. You remember when David had the opportunity to kill Saul, and his men said, go on, go on, do it. And he said, no, his day will come. Maybe he'll die in battle, but his, di his day will come, and not at my hand. So here he says, God knows that the day of the wicked is coming. Well, they're the very words that David uses about Saul when he justifies not killing him. Then verse 15, their sword of the wicked shall enter into their own heart. What that means is the wicked will kill themselves with their own sword sticking it in their own heart. Their sword of the wicked shall enter into their own heart. They will take their sword and put it in their own heart. Well, who did that? It was Saul. You know, his armor-bearer wouldn't kill him, so he, he fell upon his own sword. He must have wedged his sword up uh, somehow and fallen upon the, with his side uh, onto, the, uh, onto the point of the sword. So that is exactly, that is exactly uh, the death of Saul. And their bows shall be broken, verse 15. Well, you remember Saul's, uh, when Saul dies... David laments over him, 2 Samuel 1, 27. He, he talks about Saul's sword and Saul's bow. Okay, uh, 32. The wicked watch the righteous and seek to slay him. Well, of course, Saul watched David's house and sought to slay him. Very same words. 33. The Lord will not leave the righteous in the hand of the wicked. Well, that again is uh, how David felt about Saul, because he, he says, uh, in depression once, I shall one day perish at the hand of Saul. But the Lord will not leave 
the righteous in the hand of the wicked. And he talks uh, several times here about being exalted to inherit the land. Verse 34, he shall exalt thee, that's you singular, to inherit the land. Well, David again talks about himself as the, the man whom God exalted to inherit the kingdom of Israel that he who was a shepherd boy rose up to inherit the kingdom, to inherit the land in that sense. And I think David is saying, you can follow my pattern. He shall exalt thee, you singular, my reader, to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, you shall see it. And that's exactly what happened with David when the house of Saul perished and he had the kingdom established in his hand. So it seems to me that he's saying, look, I got there in the end. And as I said, he's talking about... He's talking in his old age, uh, I think really pretty clearly from verse 25. I've been young and now I'm old. And this is a psalm of David from the title. So it, it seems that he's saying, look, I had this huge anger issue with Saul, but I got over it. I did not fret myself. I got there in the end. And I want to share this with you. And in the same way as God exalted me against all odds to inherit the land, to inherit the kingdom, so... That is what he can do for you, for thee, as the AV says, you singular. So then David here really is a pattern for us all. That we can rise above these feelings, these issues, which tend to hold us down psychologically. I mean, so much of our time we could spend thinking about spiritual things. But instead, for so many people, they tend to chew over the past and rehearse it all and go into it all again and again and again. And in fact, by doing that, the issues typically become ex exaggerated and distorted in their own minds. People become demonized. Uh, what one imagines were people's motives become, in our mind, actually what they really think and we the things we imagine they might do privately or might say about us or others privately, we become convinced that they did actually say, etc. And all this is leading us away from the kingdom. Ultimately, we're letting those people win because they will keep us out of the kingdom if we become so fretful about them. So then, in the simplest terms, if we are going to, as verse 29 says, inherit the land, the earth, and dwell therein forever. What is, you know, that argument of 20 years ago or last year? I'm not saying that behavior does not have consequence. I'm not saying that, well, it doesn't matter. It probably does matter, and maybe it matters eternally, what was done to you. But no amount of apparent justice in this life will ultimately make you feel better about it. Because the ultimate justice is not in this world. It's not in a court of law. It's not in the judgment of our church, our ecclesia, uh, our group of friends, or whatever. The ultimate justice is in the day of justice or judgment when the Lord Jesus comes back. And if only we could get some sense of eternity, of the sheer physical, if you like, length of it, the idea of a, you know, a line that goes on and on and on and on, like a, you know, a piece of wool that just goes on and on and on and on, that eternity, then so little else matters. 
apart from being there and delighting ourselves in the grace of the God and his dear son who made all this possible. And if we delight in those things in this life, then, as we read, verse 11, we will delight ourselves in the abundance of peace when we inherit the land. If our real interest is a load of argument and a load of justification and self-justification, etc., etc., well, that's not the stuff of the kingdom. All that shall pass. The kingdom is about eternal peace. And the point is, if we don't fret ourselves about those who have abused us, and if we do, verse 8, cease from anger and forsake wrath, then we will be focused upon kingdom things. If only we could understand that the final arbiter of all human behavior, the final judge, is not you and me, then this is a real way to peace. It really is. And so the kingdom, in that sense, breaks through into our lives right now. And that is the kingdom life. The life without anger and wrath, delighting in the things of God, delighting in peace, which you and I can really live right now and eternally.